Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On today's show we have Siobhan McHale. She's written a groundbreaking book, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change. It's a global bestseller. She's also a culture transformer and people expert. But before we get a chance to speak with Siobhan, it's Leadership Hacker News. The Barrett Valley Centre has completed some extensive research on the impact of culture and values around the COVID-19. The centre sought to answer questions that are useful in helping supporting leaders and their stakeholders address the challenges that they may face. In interviewing 2,500 people worldwide, including 300 C-suite executives, the pandemic has been referred to as the Great Pause, and it appears to have forced individuals and organisations to stop, look internally and consider what they may need to do to operate in the future and how their approach may also need to shift. Now there have been global crises before, but never one that has affected so many people and so directly in all our lifetime. The research compared personal values pre-COVID-19 to that that we're experiencing now. And we've seen four new values emerge in a top priority during the pandemic. And they are making a difference, adaptability, well-being and caring. The values of continuous learning and family were already present pre-COVID, but have since increased in their priority. There has been a real shift in values moving towards more care and well-being amidst the crisis. Some interesting statistics that the report has shared is well-being shifted from its position of 26 to 5 due to the importance of people personally during COVID-19. The traditional process focus has been replaced by a focus on people, agility and communication. During COVID-19 results orientation as an organisational value shifted from its number 2 position down to number 25 and achievement shifted from 6 to 50, which leaves the question in leaders of how do you then drive results in parallel with well-being and people focus to maintain that positive culture. Not surprisingly, values such as agility had moved up from 43 to 8, digital connectivity had moved up from 50 to 2, and employee health had moved from 61 to now 5. One stark statement in the research was that employees are placing 15 times more emphasis than their leaders on the need for continued direction and communication going forward. So as you look to thrive following this pandemic, first take a look at your current state. Don't make assumptions about the values and culture of your organisations, but really evaluate them and learn from what the real landscape looks and feels like in your organisation today. If we fail to really diagnose this effectively now, it could mean that we deploy the wrong strategy, the wrong approach and the wrong energy in our next wave of planning. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. If you have any insights, information or stories, please get in touch. Our special guest on today's show is Siobhan McHale. She's a culture transformer and selected as a member of Thinkers 50 Radar 
tackling the big issues of our time with rigor and energy. And she's also the author of the best-selling book, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change. Shivel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Great to be with you today. So before we get into the theme of culture and culture change, it'd be really interesting just to explore how you become so fascinated by the theme of culture. Tell us a little bit about how you arrived here. Yeah, I suppose I started off studying psychology and as my classmates were veering down a path to become clinical psychologists, I was really much more interested in the world of work and in particular what makes people perform at their best and their highest rather than maybe looking at people who were more struggling with um, perhaps mental health issues in a clinical setting. I was much more interested in becoming a, an organizational psychologist. So that really started me on the path to exploring uh, workplace culture in particular. And during your time in your management consulting career, you traveled extensively across the world and you saw lots of different cultures. What was the maybe the one or two things that you identified at that time that really kind of drew you into the whole premise of culture and what culture is? Yeah, I suppose I, I traveled and worked across four continents. And during that time, I advised hundreds of leaders about how to create more productive and constructive uh, work environments. But I walked into some places where there were toxic cultures that really drained the energy uh, from the organization and led to abysmal customer service. And then on the other side of the spectrum, I walked into some organizations that had amazing cultures that really um, delighted customers and, and had very engaged workforces. So I started to, over a period of 30 years, started to research uh, what made workplaces deliver, grow and adapt more easily. And uh, really, that is the subject of, of my book. Um, how do you create workplaces that can deliver, grow and adapt? And it's really interesting. In my experience of culture, you can almost walk into an organization and you might not be able to physically see it, but you can get that vibe. You can feel it very, very quickly, mm. whether it's good or, or less good, right? Absolutely. What causes that? I think culture is, is one of those commonly used terms, but it really is the, the ways of relating, uh, the ways of operating within the organization. And it's uh, not so much about the what happens at the individual behavioral level. It's more about how the organization functions at a collective level. And uh, sometimes those ways of relating are functional and sometimes they're quite destructive. And uh, as I said, they can uh, leak value, uh, financial value included from the organization drop by corrosive drop. And I wonder how organizations apply a different lens versus I have a business strategy over here. Here's my financials. Here's my, my strategy. Lots of hard mm. and fast measures. But as you just rightly said, you know, this could leak huge amounts of financial mm. leakage. Organizations can lose a significant amount of revenue by just having the wrong culture. And, and I wonder what causes organizations to look at culture differently to maybe other parts or mm. tenets of their business? Yes, a great question. It's one of the big myths about how what is culture and, and what, how we framed culture has been largely in many organizations in terms of employee experience. So we talk about culture as if it's just about employee satisfaction, employee engagement, inclusion, diversity. And of course, they're really important aspects of culture, but they're not the only aspects. 
culture relates to every part of your business, including how you manufacture, uh, how you design, how you manufacture, how you sell, how you service your products. And uh, this is the, the area that I think we've got to look at culture through a, a much more commercial lens because uh, you really need to have the right culture in order to deliver on your strategy. I think that is the question for management teams. What culture do we need to enable and fast track our business strategy? Is there something there about organizations and indeed leaders within an organization all having a different perspective of what culture is? Yeah, I often say culture is one of the most talked about but least understood uh, concepts in workplaces today. And you need to have a common frame and a common language. And I think many uh, leaders have been taught that in order to shape the culture, you simply document the values and the behaviors that you want to see and you roll out those values and behavior statements and then you get um, you get a change in the culture. Now, we all know that that's nonsense, but leaders haven't been given any other tools or many other tools in order to create the right culture that will deliver on their strategic intent and produce the financial results that they're looking for. So we've got to get leaders away from this notion that it's just about values and behaviors and start to see that culture is about the collective patterns of relatedness that sit at the, you know, sit at the more systemic or collective level. Right. So over the 30 years of research you've undertaken and the extensive study around culture, is there a, a simplified way in which you describe what culture is? Yeah, I would say it's the ways of relating um, in the organization. And it's the distinction, I think, between the dancers and the dance. So the dancers are the behaviors but the dance is the way, the, the ways of operating, the way that the organization functions. And often we focus in just on the behaviors, but we don't, you know, the dancers, but we, we don't necessarily see the dance. And those are the, the patterns or, or what I call the agreements uh, between the parts. Oh, it's a lovely way of describing it, actually. I quite like that. So uh, I did um, uh, some work at the ANZ Bank, which is one of the big four banks in Australia. And this was in the early 2000s when the bank was really getting uh, a lot of bad press about how its customer satisfaction and its closure of rural branches. And the CEO at the time, John McFarlane, knew he had to turn around the organization and create better returns to shareholders and increase customer satisfaction. But when I walked into the bank, I could see that there was a pattern that was very dysfunctional, that was keeping it stuck in the old ways and delivering very poor customer satisfaction. And the head office was taking up the role of order giver and the branches, the 700 branches, were taking up the role of order takers. So the head office was giving the orders and saying, do this, do that, and the branches were just stepping into the role of the order taker. And each part, both the head office and the branches, were blaming each other for the poor customer satisfaction. And this pattern of blame was going around and around and actually leaking energy from the organization. So we had to see that pattern first uh, before we could start to shift the culture. And we put in a new operating model. We reframed the role of the head office from order giver to support provider to the branches. And we reframed the role of the 700 branches from order taker to service provider to the customer. And that uh, new operating model and the reframing changed the pattern of blame 
uh, to a different pattern between head office and branches, which was we work together to meet the needs of our customers. And sometimes it's just as simple as reframing, isn't it, for people in that in the mix of that moment so that they can see things in a different way and get a different behavior, I guess. Exactly. Reframing is a very powerful tool that is often overlooked. Uh, sometimes when we think about change, we think we have to change people's personality. But I often think that that's the hard way. You know, personality is very hardwired and what, what right do we have to ask people to change who they are? And instead, we can reframe, reframe people's role, reframe the role of a department, reframe the role of a team. You can even reframe the role of a whole organization and get it um, pivoting, get it moving very quickly in a different direction. Now, I'm sure you won't mind me mentioning this, but your work at ANZ, not only was it instrumental in changing the fortunes of a failing Australian bank to becoming a number one performer globally at one stage, but also that John Cotter or Professor John Cotter, which many of our listeners will be familiar with as one of the forerunners in the, mm. the world of leading change, actually contacted you and is using this as part of the Harvard Business MBA work now, right? Mm, yeah. So, yeah, I was sitting at my desk one day when reception patched through a call from Professor John Cotter. And <laughs> you can imagine I, I almost fell off my chair because I'd read all of his books and he was, um, and he still is a, a guru in the space and he was my, my idol. And yeah, he was looking for global case studies for successful transformation and successful culture change. And he selected the one that I'd written up as the case study that he was teaching Harvard MBA students about. So teaching people how you manage change and how you accelerate change more quickly. So yeah, that was um, quite a pivotal moment for me because what it taught me was that my work could be beneficial beyond the bounds of the organization that I was working in. And that was one of the, the key moments when I also had this realization that I could uh, share the findings of my research with a broader audience, um, which also led me to, to write the book. Awesome. And therefore, the Insider's Guide was born. Yes, yes, indeed. So, yeah, the Insider's Guide to Culture Change. So we'll get into the book in, in a little bit more detail in a moment. And there's a couple of things in there that when I read that were, were really insightful. I'd love to explore those with you. But before we do, what's the reason that most leaders often struggle to get culture right? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it does relate back to how leaders see their role. And one of the things that I've noticed over the past 30 years is leaders tend to frame their work, their role in terms of their uh, running the business. So their operational role, their role is to run the business, but they don't necessarily see or take up their culture change role or their culture role. They don't necessarily see themselves as the chief culture officer. And often in organizations, culture has been delegated to HR to, to take up the mantle. And whenever that occurs, in my experience, it's problematic because then culture becomes something that HR has to fix and um, line managers tend to take a step back in those organizations and then culture doesn't get uh, embedded truly in my experience. It's a neat reframe as well, having that chief culture officer. I wonder how many organizations actually have one these days. Uh, I'm not familiar with many, if any, actually. Yes. Well, I think the chief culture officer needs to be the CEO and HR has to reframe its role to be um, a critical leader, but in an enabling function. So 
providing the tools, the support, the advice, the processes in order to embed the culture that is going to deliver on the organization's strategic imperatives and going to meet the business goals. And I think that's the, the work that HR has to do to start seeing its role, not just around employee experience, but how can you help managers at all levels to create a culture that might be a growth-oriented or performance-driven culture or commercial culture, customer-driven culture, quality culture, um, innovative culture. These are all things that managers are calling out for. How do I have a more adaptive culture in these disruptive times? And what I'm saying to HR folk is where is your toolkit for that? How can you walk up to those questions and have solutions for managers and leaders who are looking for that type of help? Got it. So your book now, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change is available and it's doing really, really well. And I'm delighted to see that is the case for you. So well done. You. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration for the book and what it was that caused you to finally get all that research together and put pen to paper. Yeah, I really did want to. My, my parents did teach us, the, their children, to um, keep learning and to make a positive difference in the world. And one of the things I noticed was that there were a lot of people writing about culture who who had a brilliant lens. They were outsiders, though, so they were either consultants or academics or journalists, and they were writing about workplace culture and a, a fantastic lens. But I had a different lens, and that was an insider lens. So I had been the executive in charge of transformation in a series of multinational organizations, as well as being an external outsider. I'd been a management consultant. But when I became an insider as the executive in charge of change, I just had a different experience. And I started to test and really see what tools can help accelerate culture change and what tools don't. And I thought, well, where is that voice? Where is that voice of the insider? And it wasn't really there. And I had to stop asking and start picking up, you know, my responsibility and sharing what I knew rather than looking for somebody else to do that. So I decided, yeah, it needs to be told. These stories, these tools need to be shared. And um, yeah, decided to step into that role. Brilliant stuff. There was one thing that really intrigued me when I read the book. It was around activating the culture disruptor mm. from an inside out perspective. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the culture disruptor is my four step solution to creating the right culture for your business. And uh, it really is. It starts with step number one, which is you must diagnose what is really going on in your organization and in the external environment. Too many people step into culture change in the wrong place. They start thinking about what type of culture do we need? And that's the wrong place to start. You need to start back at what's going on in the business environment. What are the external forces? What, what, is, what are the deeply embedded and often hidden patterns that are running us that we really maybe need to... Um, say goodbye to in the future. Sometimes the patterns that served you very well in the past are not the same patterns that are going to serve you in the future. So yeah, that the you know, it's a four-step um, process to get to and continue to create a culture that is going to meet your business needs, starting with um, 
analysing what's going on for you within your workplace as well as the external environment. The second step then is to reframe. Reframing is a very powerful tool and you can reframe the role of the different parts of your business in order to create faster change with less noise. So it gives a lot of examples of how you do that reframing in the book. And then the third step is to break the pattern. It sounds easy, but it's much harder than it sounds. And there's different tools to break uh, some patterns that are, may no longer be serving you. And then the fourth one is to consolidate your gains. And this is where a lot of leadership teams and management teams, they lose puff. They run out of steam on the journey. So how do you keep going? How do you keep your foot on the change accelerator over the longer term? And momentum is probably the, the biggest key here, isn't it? Because it's like rolling a big boulder up a hill. It is. You get so far and so far and the energy starts to wane. What would be the one thing if I was a leader listening to this that you'd say that would be helpful for me to maintain that momentum on any culture change? Yeah, I would say your leadership team form, a, you know, give them the role of leading uh, the change effort, the culture change effort, and have regular meetings with your uh, with your management or leadership team about how is the how is the change going i talk about uh, seeing yourselves as captains of a ship and instead of spending all of your time on deck you need to get back to up onto the bridge and have a look at what's going on in relation to our change journey how are we tracking what are some of the things that we're experiencing. We might have um, put something into the organization. How did that go? Often leaders um, do interventions, but they don't check how it went. You know, what was the reaction? What was the response? What was the feedback? Do we need to head in a different direction? Uh, so I would say having that management team and meeting regularly and diagnosing how's the change going and how do we need to move and adjust on the journey. It's a constant evaluation as well, isn't it? It's just not one of those things you can set off and run and then think, right, okay, we'll keep going. It's a constant evaluation to pivot and to change and to modify, right? Absolutely. So many leaders have been taught you just spend months uh, defining the values of the organization. You produce a glossy document and some posters, you roll out some workshops and that's it. And that isn't it. As we know, it, that seldom works. So uh, we've got to try a different way. And that's why I think it's important for leaders to understand that they have a culture role and giving them the tools to take up this culture role at all levels. So it's not just senior executives, managers at all levels need to be able to step into their role to shape the type of culture that's going to deliver the business the results that they need. You've just spiked a, a thought in my thinking, actually, because you're absolutely right. Culture isn't about a, a certain level of hierarchy leading this. This is a leadership responsibility for everybody in whatever role they do in the organization. And I wonder how many organizations actually feature culture and the role that we have to play in leading culture as part of induction programs? I think it's a really great point. I think most organizations would talk to their new employees about their organizational values, but I doubt that many would frame people's role as a culture leader. I think it's becoming more common, but uh, you know, your role is to lead the culture and bring it to life every single day. That's a very powerful reframe. Uh, compared to here are the values and uh, here's your, your mug or your mouse pad with the values on right. it. Uh, and that was one of the keys at ANZ Bank. 
every person was told, and one of our five values was that you will lead and inspire each other. So the reframe there was leadership will not come from the top. Each of you will lead and inspire each other. And that was a powerful mobilizer on our change journey, that reframe for the 32,000 employees. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really powerful, really powerful. Mm. So in your book, you also talk about there being a number of big myths about workplace culture. What's the biggest myth that you encounter? I think there are many, many big myths, but I think one of the biggest ones is that culture is somehow fixed and a one-size-fits-all. So there is this myth that, you know, we've got to keep the same culture as we've always had. It's like a mountain or a rock, whereas culture needs to adapt, needs to uh, keep on uh, being something that you examine and that you refine as as needed. And um, it's not a one size fits all. You know, there's this thing, oh, you must, we all must aspire to X culture. Well, you know, what about if you're in a military department? Uh, you might want to create a disciplined culture to ensure that soldiers and civilians are safe in war-torn regions. Whereas if you're a leader in a marketing company, you might want to create an innovative culture so you can really impress and wow clients with your innovative ideas. So, no two organizations will need or want the exact same culture. Uh, so it's not a one-size-fits-all, Steve. No, I think you're right. Super stuff. So the one thing that intrigues me quite often when I have conversations with my clients and their teams around culture and setting them up for success is the whole principle about how do we measure it? So there's lots of traditional outcomes that we can look for in terms of behaviors and results, but how would you suggest is the best or the most effective way of measuring culture change? Yeah, culture itself is, you know, I think if if you go back to the ANZ example, what you've got to be able to see in your diagnosis of your culture are the patterns of relating between the parts. So you've got to be able to see, for example, that the head office is in role of order giver and the branches are in role of order taker and there's a pattern of blame between them. Now, that's not something you can measure. You've got to be able to go in there and diagnose that. If you don't get that diagnostic right, the risk is that you go in and you say, oh, we've got poor customer satisfaction. Let's put in some training courses so that the branch staff know how to deliver better customer service to our customers. And that intervention could actually fuel the pattern of blame in the organization, as you can imagine, because the branch staff might say, well, they don't even trust us to provide service and it's not our fault. It's the head office. We don't have the authority to make decisions. So that diagnosis is not something that you can measure, but you can measure the outcomes of seeing the pattern and intervening to shift the pattern by, for example, a customer satisfaction survey. So if you're aiming to have a culture of customer centricity, you can measure that by getting feedback from your customers about how they're seeing your service. But the diagnostic is different to the outcome of the the culture, if you know what I'm saying. The pattern you can't measure as easily. You've got to be able to see that. And it's not necessarily something that a survey will tell you. Of course. And if you don't get that diagnostic right, your outcomes and your measures of any kind will be incorrect in the first place. Correct. Absolutely. And many times leaders rush off and they put in interventions that don't actually create any change. And sometimes it takes them backwards, which was happening at the ANZ. They were doing restructure after restructure, trying to train people and get them to increase 
the customer satisfaction and it was having no impact until we went in and did a proper diagnostic. Yeah, makes a sense. So as part of your journey as well and becoming renowned now for culture and leading cultural change, you've also been a leader of others. My job as part of this show is to hack into the minds of great leaders. And I'm really keen to get into your leadership thinking now and to find out what would be some of your top hacks. So tell us what your top leadership hacks could be, Javon. Yeah, I would say for me, it's um, don't try to change somebody as a person and modify the role, not the person. So for me, I found that that is um, an amazing way of, of, of allowing people to be their true authentic selves um, but reframing their role. And I've had so many examples of um, just people seeing their role in one way. For example, I was coaching somebody who was having real problems with um, their team and, and getting people on board. And there was just a lot of noise from her team. And she, when she drew a map of her role, was seeing herself um, as an individual achiever, an achiever rather than, and she was running up the hill on her own, rather than galvanizer of her and mobilizer of her team. So just that awareness that she was in role of individual achiever and she needed to be in role of mobilizer shifted her whole way of interacting with her team. So that would be one of my big ones, reframe the role uh, rather than trying to modify or change the person. Fascinating. I've never thought of it that way before because most people will try and coach, cajole, encourage behavioral shift where actually it might mm. just be a simple reframe of the role, right? Yeah. Which is a lot easier to fix, of course, than someone's behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, sometimes we we have lots of another guy, he came to me and he was looking for a job. He'd been looking for a job for nine months and had this CV that was seven pages long with lots and lots of detail. And I flicked through it and he said, I just can't get a break, Siobhan. And I flicked through it and I said, you know what you are? You're a problem solver. You're a fixer. He went, yeah, that's everything that I've done in my career. I, I fix problems. I solve problems. Anyway, within three months, he'd landed a senior job in a very big organization in Australia. And I didn't even know about this, but my boss met his boss, two CEOs meeting each other. And um, she talked about the fact that she just hired this guy as the CFO. And he said, oh, why did you hire him? She said, oh, he's a problem solver. He's a fixer. <laughs> just that simple reframe of what yeah. he actually did and the value that he brought allowed him to go into the marketplace and sort of frame his role in a very different way. And it landed him a job. So the power of reframing how, how you and others see you, you and your role is incredibly powerful. My other leadership hacks, and it's something that we have already we've talked about, is don't rush too quickly to solutions. You know, I see a lot of leaders under a lot of pressure to deliver the results very quickly. Take the time to diagnose the underlying issues and the patterns that are uh, of relatedness between the parts. And um, the other one I would say is don't delegate your culture to HR to fix. Um, Make sure you right. and, and your other leaders are actually leading culture and HR is in its role to enable that to happen with great tools and great solutions, but don't delegate culture. Super advice. Thank you. We affectionately call this part of the show Hack to Attack, and this is where we explore with our guests times in their career or their lives where things haven't worked out well. 
perhaps it's been adversity, but as a result of that, we're now using that experience as a positive in our life and our work. What would be your hack to attack? Yeah, when I was first um, hired as a management consultant in London at Coopers and Lybrand, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, I took on board two uh, big assignments at the same time. I was very keen. I was ambitious. So I took on board work for two different partners and th they were both full-time jobs. And I went to one of the partners at the time and I said, listen, I'm really in a double bind here because I've got two massive assignments and, um, you know, I don't think I can deliver both of them. And he said, well, you've taken them on board now and you've committed, so you've got to deliver them. And I stayed up for three weeks working, you know, burning the candle at both ends, but I did deliver both of them. And it was a big lesson for me about, you know, you make a commitment and you deliver on that commitment um, no matter what it takes. So, it it was a really big lesson. It was hard one, um, but um, it it stayed with me till till this day. Whatever you uh, promise, you you deliver on that promise. Sets you up for success. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. So, Siobhan, if we were able to do a bit of time travel now, and you were able to bump into yourself at twenty one. What would be the best bit of advice you would give Siobhan then? At 21, I was still a student in Galway on the west coast of Ireland studying psychology. And I suppose I was wondering at that stage, what, what, would, what would my future look like? And I'd probably tell myself, don't be afraid, follow your passions, travel the world. Um, yeah, pursue your dreams and uh, don't be afraid of being your true authentic self in that as well just be who you are and 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 follow your passions follow your dreams and that's sort of what I did but looking back on it it was probably with some trepidation I was wondering what 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 is going to yeah what's going to emerge in the future so don't be afraid to be your true self and follow your dreams. Awesome. And of course, it's not time bound to age, is it? You know, and that still probably holds true today, right? Absolutely. Same lesson. True, Steve. So what's next for you then, Siobhan? Um, in terms of what's next for me, I mean, I love my job. I'm the head of HR at Julux Group and I love my job. And I'm also in my role as an educator. So I love being the head of HR at Julux Group and I also love being an educator and which is one of the reasons I wrote the book. So I'm leaning into both of those roles and really loving it, Steve. And more education and more supporting and helping other people's thinking, which today has definitely been part of too. Oh, thank you. I hope it, it will help people to create better workplaces, which has always been my passion. So from my perspective, I just wanted to say I'm delighted that you're on the show and thanks ever so much for sharing some of your great insights. If folk wanted to get to know a little bit more about your work, where's the best place they could find out a bit more? Yeah, I would say LinkedIn is uh, probably the best place to find me. And um, yeah, Siobhan, Siobhan McHale. That's S-I-O-B-H-A-N, Siobhan, very um, unusual Gaelic name. But um, yeah, that, that's the best place to, to find me, Steve. Brilliant. And we'll make sure we put your LinkedIn profile in our show notes. And we'll also put a copy of the link into your book as well, so folk can find it when they've listened to you today. Great. Thank you, Steve. Siobhan, thanks ever so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and, and speaking to us from the other side of the planet. So our first Australian connection on our show. So thanks ever so much for being part of the Leadership Hacker podcast. It's been a pleasure. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. 
Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.